Hey folks, if you're being treated for anxiety and depression and you're still struggling, consider joining one of my DBT groups. Skills groups are a supportive, inclusive, cost-effective way to get the skills you need to create the life you want. Go to my website, rebeccashackney.com slash groups for more information. I'm Rebecca Shackney. As a psychotherapist, I spend my days talking to clients about the importance of family connections, especially at mealtimes. While I try not to judge myself when I quickly heat up chicken nuggets for my kids before I run back for another session. But like everyone else, I'm trying to do better. This is A Therapist Takes Her Own Advice. For many of us, our relationship with food is complicated. Today, I speak with Grace Choi, a PhD in food studies and host of the podcast, The Psyche Eats. She offers some interesting insights into the role food plays in our lives. So tell me about yourself. I uh, am a mom of two. I've got two small kids. Casper is three and a half, and my son, Theo, is almost 10 months. Um, and uh, I live in the Northern Virginia area, right outside of DC. I was in New York for like 16 years after college. Um, and I, I moved there to go to culinary school um, and then get my PhD at NYU uh, and work. And then um, once, and then we moved to Westchester for two years and uh, decided, I, I think I'd always chased what Northern Virginia had. It's so beautiful here. We're surrounded by so much nature. Is that where you grew up? It is, yeah. Oh, so tell me about food. What brought you to food? What attracted you to food studies? I'd always been chasing a vocation, mm-hmm. um, and I, I was struggling for a long time with trying to figure out where I fit into the world. Uh, and in my senior year of college, I was dating this guy, um, and I had just kind of um, thrown out that I loved food so much and I wish I could have just gone to culinary school. And he was like, well, you should, you should just go to culinary school. And he lived in New York um, and I had visited him. So I was like, you know, that actually just makes a lot of sense. And once I decided on food and in, in, as like an area uh, of study, then all the pieces sort of fell into place. Like mm-hmm. I, I knew exactly where I wanted to go to school. Uh, the interests that I had had growing up sort of made much more sense to me. I mean, I always tell the story about when I think back on the books that I read or the movies that I watched, uh, it was it was never so much like the plot line of the characters that really stuck with me, but the meals and the things that they ate. And just being attuned to that sort of um, focus on food and the role that it had played in my life um, made it much more easy to make that decision to go into food. But I didn't know what I wanted to do in food. Um, so I went to culinary school because that seemed to be the most uh, obvious way to enter into the industry. And when I was in culinary school, I worked really hard, um, very much from the ground up because I went and I didn't really know anything about herbs. Like, for example, I didn't know uh, how to tell the difference between thyme and rosemary. Um, And I know it seems so obvious, but like, they're like, it's just, I had no idea. Um, And I uh, kind of army crawled my way to the middle. And then I worked in restaurants um, because that was also the most uh, sense-making thing to do. Um, But I knew that I didn't want to work in magazines or in 
restaurants. And those really seemed to be the only two options uh, that I thought were available. And then I found out about the food studies program. It just blew me away, the description um, of the program at NYU. So I moved back to New York and I enrolled. And um, once I got there, I realized just how intensely academic it was. And I had no, it was so different from college, but I was very, very lucky to get in and spent seven years getting my PhD. And so you have a PhD in food studies. Tell me about that. What do you do with a a PhD in food studies? That's just so fascinating. Yeah, it is super fascinating and something that not a lot of people really understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know if my own parents really understand exactly what it is. Um, But food studies is uh, an exploration of the relationship between food and the human experience. So the best way that I can sort of describe food studies is um, instead of going into an anthropology or an American studies or sociology, political science department, and then focusing on food as your subject of inquiry, you go into food studies and you have this sort of umbrella um, education uh, that delves into all these other disciplines. And then you select which discipline you kind of want to piggyback on um, or do a deeper dive into. And that becomes the basis of um, your doctorate, your, your doctoral studies. So for me, I was interested in ethnic identity. Really, mm-hmm. how do we use food to communicate our identities? Um, and so I wrote my dissertation on, I initially sent out a, uh, a call for participants asking um, about the ways in which you communicate your identity through food or ethnic identity through food or the way that your ethnic identity is communicated to you by other people through food. Mm-hmm. Um, case in point, like if somebody were to look at me and, you know, they might ask, do you eat kimchi? Or like, I do know how to make kimchi. There's this immediate like association that people make, which is totally normal. Um, but there's certain cuisines have different, a different status than others. And so how you, how other people communicate what they know about you and your culture is made very clear through their questions. Uh, but what was really interesting about the dissertation was that the participants that had responded to my, my, um, call, uh, a lot of them, like 10 out of 20, had lo- had recently lost a parent. And there was something very provocative and compelling in the idea that after the loss of a parent, the salience of food um, just increased in their life and in the way that they understood themselves. Uh, and that was really worth diving into, the idea that loss can be this um, perpetrator of uh, significance right? There's something about losing something or someone that causes this, uh, this under, like this uh, changing understanding of the role that food plays in your life. How did that play out specifically for some of your uh, research stu- subjects? So I had three subjects, but one in particular, uh, her name was Sarah in quotes, and she was Polish American. She had lost her father um, in college. And when she was growing up, she was Polish American. She grew up in Brooklyn and she had, her parents got divorced, but she was equally close to both. And mealtimes were very different with each parent. With her mom, the food was a little bit more nutritious, but it wasn't exciting. It was more about the conversations around the dinner table with her father. It was in her words, like balls to the wall, like (laughs) just getting, like he was like Papa Bear and she was his little cub and they would just 
eat steak and meat and get really messy and, you know, eat ribs and get cut their faces like covered in sauce. And she always remembers seeing him with bits of like steak or meat in his beard. He was like this barrel of a man, this bear of a man. Um, and, uh, when she was 15, she, uh, decided to become a vegetarian. And that was something that concerned her because she, she was concerned about what it would mean about her relationship with her father. And for her, it was also sort of a, it wasn't necessarily that vegetarianism caused this, but it also coincided with um, the period of her life where she started exhibiting disordered eating behaviors. When she told her father, he was very supportive and he just stocked his freezer with like frozen vegetable burger patties. <laughs> and then when he passed away of a heart attack, it was very sudden. She went through many stages of grief, as is understandable. But then a couple of years later, she started revisiting food as a way of connecting not only to her father and sort of reenacting this relationship that she had with him, but also to connect with the people that loved him. She was an only child. And what she was, what was really frustrating for her is that she would go to her cousin's houses and they would be sitting there and they would be eating these really rich foods. And she, because of her ideology, she felt like she couldn't participate in them. Mm. And because she couldn't participate in them, she felt very disconnected from them. And so she made this this decision to forego vegetarianism um, and in place eat meat so that she could, in her words, get under the covers with the people that loved her father, which is so beautiful. It was a way for her to sort of rescue these memories that she had with her dad. But the conflicting part in all of this is that as much as food was used as a, as a means of connection, it was also in her life because of her history with disordered eating, an instrument of control. And for her to participate in these like really rich indulgences uh, came into a lot of conflict and tension with her desire to look and feel a certain way and mm -hmm. not be weighed down with these foods. And you know, food is very, very complex. And I think this is what, what's one of the most interesting things about food is that we have very thorny relationships with it. You know, it's yes. and on the one hand, it's glorified and glamorized. I mean, you just go on Instagram and you see all these gorgeous plates of pasta, mm -hmm. especially or sourdough right now. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you know, society is telling people, mostly women, that they need to constantly lose, right? I think many of us have an adversarial relationship with food. And when you were telling that story about Sarah, it made me actually something I didn't even expect. It made me think about my father and my father passed away in 2013. And right after I became pregnant, I never really had an opportunity to mourn his death so much. And and as you were talking about food, it, it made me think of the connections I have with him and with food. He loved McDonald's, which is bizarre because he didn't like to, to eat at McDonald's. He would bring his own food. He would bring bread and a banana and get iced tea at McDonald's. I know it's strange. <laughs> he would always bring my brother and I happy meals back. And at one point, um, a few years ago, I, I the smell of of McDonald's french fries brought all that back for me. You know, it's, it, I probably take my children to McDonald's once a week at least. Um, and I wonder if there's that connection there, that subconscious, oh, you know. Well, yeah. Wh why wouldn't you want your children to have that kind of intimate like sense of delight that you shared with your father, right? right. I mean, I, I completely understand. I mean, as much as I 
want my children to be healthy. I also want them to feel that delight of getting a happy meal, right? Or like just, I mean, McDonald's for me is, is, um, is interesting because I, I, I distinctly remember when I was a kid, um, when they, when extra value meals first came out, I was Mm -hmm. so happy because I was never, I don't know, I was always afraid of my parents as loving as they are. Um, but I was always afraid to ask them for things. And, um, when I went to McDonald's, I could never ask them for a French fries and a Big Mac or chicken nuggets. I always had to ask them for one or the other. And then all of a sudden there was this compelling reason to have both. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'll just get a number five. You know what I mean? It was just, right. it was such a, I just remember that being such a wonderful day. But the interesting thing about this, about smell and the connection to food and memory. So olfaction smelling is, deeply connected to emotion. Marcel Proust has written on it with the story of the cookie, you know, the Madeleine, in which he dips his Madeleine into um, tea at his aunt's house, I think, and like takes a bite and he's immediately transported back into this uh, very specific memory from his childhood. And he's overcome by the poignancy of this emotion. And he talks about um, he just kind of breaks down what that emotion feels like. It's not so much the taste, but it's the flavor. Taste can be broken down into, you know, bitter, salty, sweet, uh, et cetera. Um, flavor, on the other hand, is much more nuanced and it's actually a mirage. We think it's happening in the mouth, but it's actually happening in, in the nose. Mm-hmm. It's our nose that creates flavor. Uh, so if you can imagine, you know, biting into an apple, for example, um, as the apple approaches your mouth, uh, you are taking in the smell of the apple. That's orthonasal olfaction. But then you bite into the apple and you swallow it. And every time you swallow, you exhale just a little bit. Just, mm-hmm. just try it. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. So every time you swallow, there's a little bit of exhalation. And that's called retronasal olfaction. Um, so the interesting thing about olfaction is that unlike seeing and hearing, um, sight and sound, they are immediately sent to the thalamus. Uh, and then distribute it to the other parts of your brain. Smell uh, goes directly into your olfactory bulb, which is immediately connected to your hippocampus and your amygdala, which are the parts of your brain that are responsible for memory and emotion. Mm-hmm. So for us, when we smell things, we have this like direct pathway into childhood memories. So it really tells you a lot about how uh, deeply connected food and smell are to how we understand ourselves and uh, like how they contribute to our autobiographical memories of childhood. You know what I mean? So it makes perfect sense to me that you would want to have your kids get treated with Happy Meals every so often. That's really interesting. What do you cook? Tell me about what your family cooked and what do you cook now? I cook everything. Um, So I'm classically trained in French cuisine and I worked in Italy at a vegetarian restaurant and I'm Korean. Um, but it's interesting that you asked that because recently I've decided to make more of a commitment to cooking more Korean food. And this is primarily because of my daughter. She's super particular and not necessarily like she, it's not like she only wants chicken nuggets and French fries. It's that there, she wants nourishing foods, but they have to be super delicious. Uh, she was the same way with like nursing too. She only wanted to nurse on me. She Mm -hmm. did not want to take a bottle, but when it comes to Korean food, she loves it. Like she can, she can really like, it's, it's, we're not fighting with her every single day. 
You know what I mean? What a relief. So what was dinner like at your house growing up? I always remember being so grateful because it was so good. I always remember sitting there being like, hmm, this is so good. This is so good. Uh, you know, my mom's a great cook. And, you know, I would love to have a child like me mm-hmm. because it, we would sit down for dinner and I would say, oh, mom, this looks so good. Thank you so much. I can't wait to eat. Like in Korean, it's mashikimokisimida, which means I'm going to eat deliciously. That's how it translates. And that. then and then um, at the end of the meal, I would say mashikimokisimida, which means I ate deliciously. And then I would take my dishes to the sink. And I wasn't like an angel child in general, but when it came to food, I, you know, I was pretty enthusiastic. My brother, on the other hand, was much more particular. Um, now we're, you know, both equal eaters. So it's not, I, I have less concern about, you know, the implications of childhood. It's funny because I was very aware of how different, I mean, food is really uh, one of the most prominent examples of how you are ethnically different from other people. And you're socialized from a very young age when it comes to not only the smells and and the sight of certain foods, but also eating practices like chewing with your mouth open uh, and the way that 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 can signal who you are. Um, So I became very aware of that from a young age. But as much as I love my mom's cooking, like we also just used to love getting, you know, Kraft mac and cheese Mm -hmm. and um, like, you know, like little bagel bites or like the pizza rolls, like the Tostino's pizza rolls. Like I remember when I was in middle school, I would have, uh, without any change, I would just go to the vending machine afterwards and, and load up on like soda and, um, and chips and stuff like that. But it's funny growing up in my house, my brother and I, my brother's a doctor, he's hyper intelligent, but he and I were never competitive when we were kids, except for when it came to food. <laughs> I, as particular as he was when it was something that we both loved, like fried clam strips, my mom would have to split things down right down the middle and make sure that she wasn't giving one or the the other more juicy pieces of clam strips. So there are some pretty funny stories about the two of us and how, how much we would fight um, over food. But mm-hmm. at this point, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, he's one of my best friends. I'm glad to hear that. That's funny. I Growing up when I, I had leftovers from any place, pizza or whatever, um, I would have to put my name on them. Like, you know, when we got into to high school and we could drive and I would go out with my friends and bring home leftovers, if I didn't put my name on it and, and write, don't eat, I had two big football playing uh, brothers who would just eat, go through the fridge as if, you know, they were tornadoes and, and everything would be gone. Tell me about Cookable. How did you come to, to creating Cookable? Cookable is my startup. It's my food tech startup, and it is just the most wonderful thing that I've that I think I've ever done for myself. When my daughter was three or four months old, she was sleeping. I was I had her. I was wearing her in one of those like baby wearers, and we had purchased an Echo, and uh, this I mean it was like a lifesaver. We just use it all the time. We we love it as a person. Um, and I remember thinking, so I've got this background, um, in food production. Um, I had done some stuff for the food network and cooking channel. And I was like, huh, I was looking at the echo and I was like, huh, I wonder if the food network would hire me to narrate some of their recipes. And then I thought about it like a few more minutes. And then I was like, wait a second. No, like, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I start a company that narrates recipes? And I remember texting my husband and I was like, Hey, I've got this idea. And, uh, and I told him, he was like, that's a great idea. 
And what's really important to note, just to revisit something that we had said earlier, is that I had I had always been chasing a vocation. I never really knew what was for me. Um, I I didn't want to be a chef, and I didn't want to be an academic. Um, but I I just didn't really know what my place was, and I I felt like I'd heard so many stories from people saying like, oh, I found my dream job, and blah blah blah, and I just didn't see what I was qualified for, uh, or that utilized my set of skills. I was thinking about this idea and I was like, oh, it could be like an audible, but for recipes. And then it really turned into, well, this is, people aren't going to listen to a recipe being narrated in the way that they would an audiobook. So then it really came down to what are the obstacles that home cooks have right now? And how can we reimagine the architecture of recipes to respond to those obstacles and to also make cooking a much more joyful experience? I was looking at Cookable and, um, you had a beautiful little story about what brought you to this place. Um, It was exactly what you were put on earth to do. And I love that you said that. You also compared it to self-care, especially in the, you know, as a mom of two little kids. I want to know what is, what about creating Cookable has been like self-care for you? It is really the most energizing thing that I've done for myself. You know, there's, you know what they say about introverts and extroverts? Extroverts are, they recharge their batteries when they're with other people and introverts recharge their batteries when they're home. For me, it feels like I recharge my batteries from cookable. Like when you find something that you feel uh, is your vocation, um, it becomes your North Star. And the way that you view the world uh, is, is there for you to make cookable an actuality. You know what I mean? Like every book that you read, uh, every, um, every story that you hear, you see through the lens of the thing that you love to do and to have arrived on my vocation in and of itself is amazing. But to see parts of myself come alive as a result of doing something really has been exceptionally rewarding. Uh, Cookable, because I care so much about it and because I feel like I can really make an impact and change the way that people cook for the first time in 200 years, which is a very daunting notion and very arrogant, by the way. Um, but because I feel this in my heart, suddenly I'm able to understand the breakdown of term sheets and and fundraising better, something that I never thought that I would have to understand. Mm-hmm. Because of Cookable, I have to push myself to be a better communicator because I'm by nature more of a people pleaser and I practicing candor is really difficult. Um, I'm also very easily intimidated and highly suggestible. So I have to be, I have to really stick to my guns, uh, you know, also talking to investors and, and hearing that kind of rejection, right? Like rejection is a thing that I hate the most, like who doesn't hate that, but to be in a room with somebody and, and, and for them to say like, I don't believe in you or I don't really understand this idea. And to be able to walk away from that conversation and think like, well, sucks to be them. That's very, uh, that is not my character. Mm-hmm. But it sounds because, like it's really empowering for you. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like when you see your child and somebody says, oh, your child is like, you know, you know, a description that they're not. You're like, eh, you just don't understand them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I had a similar feeling about podcasting, actually. So for me, it, I have a background in theater, and it feels like a convergence of theater and therapy. So it feels really good to do that. You mentioned that 
cookable is going to disrupt recipes and cooking for the first time in 200 years. How is it going to do that? It really comes down to the psychology of the home cook. Uh, and when you think about when you think about cooking off of a recipe, there are so many obstacles. You have to wash your hands so you're not getting raw chicken on your iPhone, or you reach a point in your recipe where you're just like, um, okay, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to like rifle through a bunch of Indian YouTube content or something like that. Um, but things often take longer than the recipe says it's going to take. Like, oh, this recipe is 20 minutes long. And you're like, even for myself, I'm, I'm pretty fast. Like 45 minutes later, I'm like, oh, I'm barely making a dent. You know what I mean? Um, and then you have any, so many questions, like so many things can go wrong. Um, one of my friends, he's a food historian, Ken Avala, he put it beautifully. He said, when you think about it, written recipes are really attempts to convert actions into words that then have to be converted back into actions. So you're taking this you know, text and you're looking at it and you're like, uh, okay, I'm just going to try and do the best that I can. And if you look at the, the structure of the recipe of the, your list of ingredients and then your steps and procedures, and that makes a lot of sense for, I mean, that's a very familiar uh, text, but when you're actually looking at it, your eyes are constantly bouncing around, right? You're always referring back to the ingredient list or you're going back to where you were, or you might skip a step. Anyway, all of these obstacles make people feel like they're not intuitive cooks. They don't lend themselves well to intuitive cooking. And it doesn't, and people assume that, that this is just what how they are. But our hypothesis is that that doesn't have to be the case at all. Like when you look at the social experience of learning how to cook, when you're looking at being in a kitchen with somebody and they're teaching you how to make lasagna, you're not just like focused on the lasagna. You're like, you're listening to their stories. You're remembering what their kitchen looks like. And then the next time you're making that lasagna, you have these retrieval cues that you can access. Um, and that just enhances the overall experience and it makes you into a better cook. We're creating these landmarks that allow you to, uh, not only enjoy cooking, but to be a better cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like beyond just the recipe architecture, then we can go, then things get really interesting because we can make the experience of executing that recipe different the second and third, fourth time that you that, that you make it. We can offer really uh, eventually down the road, this is like the product roadmap we're talking about. We can offer sophisticated recommendation systems. But really this comes down to, like anybody can code this. Like Amazon, Google, they've already created this um like this native recipe platform where bigger media companies can go and just kind of plug and chug their recipes. And then you can have this guided experience, uh, this like voice navigation experience through your echo show that shows you what the step looks like and is able to uh, give you the steps that you need. But what differentiates cookable is really our attention to not only how people cook, but how they learn, how they remember and how they feel. And this is where, this is what, this is why I say that I feel like I'm uniquely fit to do it because of my very, very specific background in culinary arts and academics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But to be able to have that sort of synthesis of skills is really important if you are thinking of trying to change the way that people cook in the kitchen or how they, how they behave in the kitchen. Interesting. You know, um, usually when I'm looking at a recipe, and I see, you know, I made this cake with my grandma, blah, 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 blah. They're, they're, I just skip past all of that. And to, I want to get to the recipe. Oh, my gosh. Blogs are the worst for that. I 
hate that. I don't care. I want to see what do I need to buy sour cream for this recipe. I don't care. When I was watching your little snippet about crispy chicken wings, I loved your story. I want to make those wings. I don't like to cook. Um, but I, I just the look of them and the way that the they came out in the end, it was amazing. And I felt connected to you. I felt like, oh my gosh, I so understand where you're coming from and I want to hang out with you and I want to watch it again and again. So thank you. That that means well, first of all, you should definitely make the chicken wings because they're delicious. Um, but the recipes that are up there, the, those are really just the beta. Um, we are launching actually our MVP, our minimum viable product in four months. Um, but, uh, and the, the beta, it's very buggy. It's, mm-hmm. it's imperfect. Um, but we're really trying to test out this new way of experiencing a recipe. So thank you so much for that. What I really want is f- for the focus not to be so much on chefs, um, but for you to be able to cook any, like, say you love Ira Glass, you know what I mean? Like what, what family recipe does he have? It doesn't necessarily have to be like a chef or a celebrity, you know, cookbook authors, anything like that. They don't necessarily have the monopoly on delicious recipes, right? Just the idea that you can engage with anybody and cook something delicious is very rewarding. The idea that the actual experience of cooking can be as much of a reward as the end result is by and large, the most exciting part of this whole journey. I love it. It's really great. And that actually makes me think about how food and cooking right now during this pandemic, during this quarantine, you know, food has become this comfort, this reward, this thing that we're turning to. So many people are ditching the organic grains and and kale and whatever and going for the old standbys that they liked as kids, you know, the mac and cheese and soups and pizza, (laughs) frozen pizzas and all kinds of things. And I wonder what you make of that. I think that that really just speaks to the incredible power of food as a as a tool for connection. Uh, um, like, so you, there are two things happening, right? Like one is people are, as you say, they're returning to the things that they loved in childhood. For us, it was after 15 years of getting organic, you know, almond butters and stuff like that. I, my first visit to Costco during this pandemic was I like picked up like one of those, I don't know, double 32 ounce things of peanut butter, like Jif peanut butter. Um, and it's funny cause I was walking around, I remember I was walking around Trader Joe's and I just saw the shelves empty, just empty. Everything was gone. Chips gone, you know, chicken gone. And then cauliflower rice just in abundance. <laughs> <laughs> just it was like the only thing that was there and it it really does say a lot i mean about like the this need for okay you know what this is really freaking hard right shelter in place is really hard, especially if you have kids and even more so if you're lonely if you're by mm-hmm. yourself i can't even imagine and if you if you are built for that you know connection to people um which i guess everybody is um and so of course like you're going to want to you know, turn to the things that are most comfortable and comforting for you. At the same time, you also see this, this, um, you know, this collective uh, practice of everybody cooking the same thing, like everybody making sourdough. And it really says a lot about um, how disconnection is, is counterbalanced with connection and how food is 
such an immediate way for people to experience that sense of connection. It's funny. So David, my husband, actually did um, grow his sourdough starter and he started making sourdough. And then as we became more busy, that kind of fell by the wayside. But boy, was it so wonderful to wake up every morning and have toast made from sourdough that he had made. It was the best thing ever. Very satisfying. Yeah, And the smell of that, as you were saying, the olfactory connection that we have to food. Um, And it's funny, as a therapist, I often suggest different ways to stimulate your different senses as a way to distract from difficult moments. So you're, you're really anxious or you're really sad or you're really depressed or whatever, and you can taste something that you like. You can listen to music or listen, uh, talk to someone, or you can smell something. You can do aromatherapy or smell something from your childhood. You know, if bake cookies, bake bread, do something that will stimulate that, and that will distract your mind just enough to just take a little of that anxiety, take a little of that fear, that depression, that sadness away. I think that it also brings you that a little bit of connection to some some memory. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's a very powerful tool. Yeah. And it's our most primitive tool or our most primitive sense is um, the sense of smell. Is so, it? Yeah. Which I think is fascinating. You know, it's funny. You were talking about cult- our cultural connection to food and you have this very rich Korean connection to food. And so it made me think, well, what was my connection? And it's really to processed foods. And a few years ago, I saw my grandmother making Thanksgiving dinner for the first time. And I, she always had the most amazing Thanksgiving dinners and made the best stuffing ever. And I watched her take cream of, of mushroom soup and put it in there. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's not really homemade. And I had, I just, a chill went through my body. Like, like my whole paradigm shifted of what this was homemade food, what my grandmother made. And I realized, no, it was, you know, cream of mushroom soup. Which is delicious. It is delicious. And I've come to realize that was a judgment and it's okay for us to have eaten those things. And it's just, we have, you know, we move so far away as a society from, oh my gosh, it's processed. We can't touch it. Right. Yeah. It's really funny that you say that because, um, my my brother and I were joking around this past Thanksgiving. We were saying that we have yet to find, and there are people who will crucify me for this, but we have yet to find um, a green bean casserole recipe or a stuffing recipe that is as good as the Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and canned like green bean, you know, mm-hmm. recipe or the stovetop <laughs> stuffing recipe. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter like how much effort I I put into either of these dishes. It just, our taste buds, especially for something like Thanksgiving, they're just wired in a specific way to want a very, very specific thing. Yes. And especially if that's what you had growing up as a kid. And so for you and your brother, it's the green bean casserole with the canned green beans and the those little crispy um, onions crispy on top. Onions, yeah. yeah. On Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving. But right. like it was, that was like really just like the time. The interesting thing about Thanksgiving is that for a lot of immigrants, that is the time to express Americanness the, at the meal at the at the dinner time the most. I think mm. for me, because I'm Korean American, f- the meaning of food is is bigger um, 
because it was this all, it was also a tool for like disgust and that kind of stuff. Like I remember, or even if, like, even if a food didn't necessarily look like it was Korean, even, even if it wasn't Korean, but it just looked different, like baba ganoush, mm-hmm. people would always kind of squiggle our nose and say like, Ew, what is that? What, like, you know, they would assume that it was Korean because it was different. Food used as a marker of differentiation, I think is, it's what makes it loaded for a lot of ethnic minorities. Mm. How Are you talking about like an, as a child, you would have people squiggle their nose at your food or or even now or I mean it's yeah I think that even now right like there's this idea there's just even if you aren't a minority in this country there's still an an association between you and what you eat and it's like what the philosopher Bria Savaran um, says tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are uh you can also say tell me how you eat and I'll tell you who you are um and it's yeah it's anything that really makes you self-conscious or even like the question that I get as an, as a Korean American, like, Oh, you're Korean. Do you eat dogs or do you eat cats? You know what I mean? Wow. It's like, that's your go-to like, that's your, but that's, I think just in human nature, such a common thing. Like if you actually watch, um, it's a wonderful life. Um, there is a scene where, uh, George Bailey is like, I guess like the executives of the bank that he works for, they accuse him of being, too sympathetic to Italian immigrants, Italian Americans. Like I think they refer to them as garlic eaters, like you and those garlic eaters. Right. Mm. And that's interesting. I mean, that's what it's sort of like the, uh, the immediate thing that people go to when they're trying to insult somebody else or when they're, Oh, well they eat that. So, you know, there must be something wrong with them. You know what I mean? I think that there's always a loadedness with food, um, that, uh, whether, you know, whether you're the perpetrator or the victim. And, you know, I'm sure I've been both. Um, I'm sure we all have. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, that's so fascinating. You know, I was I, I was listening to your last interview. One of the things that I found so interesting is you're talking about spam. And it was right when I was starting to think about our discussion and about processed foods. And so I wonder how, what does spam mean to you as a child growing up and do do you still eat it is it still part of your culture going forward anybody who listens to this interview is going to think that i only eat <laughs> junk food and processed food uh, <laughs> that's that's totally not the case um but i i think it's because i have a chip in my shoulder about the way that it's treated um and unfairly so that uh i talk so much about things like spam um spam vienna sausages uh corned beef hash, like any sort of meat from the can. What really just gets to me about spam is that if you eat hot dogs, <laughs> then you you are in no place to judge spam, just in no place whatsoever. It's <laughs> developed this terrible, terrible reputation. Um, but I do hope that it's coming back. When I was growing up, my family, we always had spam in the house and my mom would go to Costco and I would go with her and she would get this like, you know, this bulk size, you know, thing of spam, this box of spam. And I would try and hide it under toilet paper and stuff. I don't even know how I learned that it wasn't, that it was considered to be like a lowbrow food. But uh, I asked my parents, I guess I was in my early twenties. I I was sitting with them and we're just drinking some wine. And I remember asking them like, why do Koreans eat so much spam? When I was in college, I connected with a lot of Filipino Americans, a lot of Asian Americans, because we all ate spam. And uh, I remember them like, you know, just looking at each other and then looking at me and then saying, when we were growing up, 
Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. And when a Korean mom came home with a can of spam that she got on the black market from the American troops, it was a very special day. She would take it and she would slice it really thin and pan fry it on both sides. And to have that with like just plain white rice, it's to this day, it's like there are, in, in terms of the hierarchy of food pairings, chocolate and peanut butter, uh, cheese and crackers, plain white rice and spam is way up there. Um, so when people of my parents' generation moved to this country, they already had this like natural uh, familiarity with it. And so they purchased it. It's just delicious. It's and That's the thing. It's flat out yummy. It's so good. If you like bacon, you like spam. I don't mm-hmm. care who you are. And so that's what it means to me. And I, I found myself sort of returning to these older recipes that I grew up on. Uh, just as a way to sort of re- reintroduce it into my life. I, it's not to say that I, I want it to be a part of my everyday diet, but I do want it to be something that is embraced. Mm-hmm. I think we all have something like that. I mean, I'm from Oklahoma and there is a, we take a big block of Velveeta and we put in a can of Rotel tomatoes and and peppers. I don't know if you know this. And you heat it up, and it's the best dip on the planet. We call it hot mm. cheese dip, and it's wonderful. I mean, yeah. and it's Rotel. It's Velveeta. And in fact, we, D- David and I were so excited in the very early days of, of uh, the pandemic when we, like, our cupboards were bare. Maybe we were going to the grocery store the next day, and I found this block of Velveeta, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, we, we have this wonderful thing that we can make. I think you really hit the nail on the head because that's what people not necessarily were given an excuse, but given a reason to go back and revisit these foods of their childhood, like a legitimate reason. I mean, if you remember, the pandemic also happened around Lent. Mm -hmm. And and for me, it was like, okay, so whatever I had planned for Lent, that's going out the window (laughs) because I'm giving up everything. Um, So yeah, just the idea that you could just really return to something like that was so, so fun. It's it was so like we fun. had permission. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. We had permission. Yeah. It's funny. My when The very first dish that I ever learned how to make, I didn't learn how to cook until much later, but um, the very first dish that I learned how to make was taught to me by my cousin, Eugene. And it was uh, one pound of ground beef, one block of Velveeta, one jar of salsa, and uh, one box of macaroni noodles. Mm-hmm. You just brown the beef and then throw in the macaroni and the salsa and then um, and enough water just to get to the level of the pasta, bring it up to a boil, cover it, reduce it to a simmer and cook it for 10 minutes. By that point, the water will have been absorbed by the pasta. And then you throw in slices of the Velveeta cheese and you put the cover back on and you just let the Velveeta just descend and like melt into everything else and you mix it up. It's like really, I mean... Nowadays, we if we can make it, but we can you can do it without mm-hmm. Velveeta. You can really do it with any cheese. Like we'll just do like a block. But of But like why Monterey would you? Jack it melts so wonderfully. It does. It really just nothing melts like Velveeta. No, no, that sounds amazing, and I would totally eat that. I would totally it's delicious. Eat that. So um, thank you. In fact, um, that's dinner tonight, everybody. Um, <laughs> I love that, and I love the I, I love that beautiful story about spam and that connection. And it makes me feel so sad that then you felt ridiculed or your parents felt ridiculed for enjoying something that was such a special thing for you. 
Yeah, I I felt ridiculed. My parents could care less <laughs> because Good. they because they had already established their identities. I mean, it's not to say that they didn't feel like embarrassment in other ways because being an immigrant in this country, you can, you cannot go through the experience without being, you know, scathed at some point. So it makes me think about I'm I'm thinking about your daughter who's so discerning and um, you know, I picture her. Not that, mommy. I need it from the breast, please. And it remind. I mean, I had a son like that. He was, he's more of a chicken nuggets kind of guy, but he wouldn't take a bottle ever. And I couldn't work as a result. But I wonder, is your son also um, so discerning? Theo is not. He's, uh, he, Theo is a very passionate eater. Um, he, I think, is going to be more like me, just like really excited. And, but he's also very difficult to feed, Um because he's so emotional about it. Like he's, I remember when he turned five months, I was like, all right, let's go. Let's, you know, let's, let's have him sample some new foods. I'm so excited. It's so interesting. It's like so fun to see people uh, taste something new for the first time. And it was really hard because he would scream like, unless if he was, because he just wanted the next bite right away. And he's such a fast eater that he just like, like he just pummels food into his mouth. It's now he's much better because he, he it doesn't have so much anxiety around it. Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to get some more? I need some more. Right, right, exactly. And that's what it was. And I was just like, I just, I couldn't, like, I couldn't squish blueberries like fat. I still can't. Like, at, at the dinner time, it's my daughter. I'm I'm arguing with my daughter trying to get her to eat. Uh, and I'm trying to feed my son, like, whatever. Like, just put enough food on his plate. Not too much because then it goes on all over the floor. <laughs> so, like, little by little. And then... I'm trying to, you know, eat like whatever scraps have fallen on the floor from him. I don't even have a proper plate in front of me. And meanwhile, my my husband, Jeff, is like, so uh, did I tell you about this? this? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, do you not see that I'm trying to struggle with two kids? And he's just like perfectly happy enjoying his meal. He is wonderful. But I often have to remind him, hey, like two on two, right? <laughs> two on two here. Obviously, you focus on cultural identity through food. What do you feel like you're culturally passing on to your children? The culture that we live in right now is different from what it was when I was growing up. There's already a sense of um, awareness around certain obscure foods, things that were obscure when I was a kid. Uh, everybody's making kimchi, for example. And that was like the main thing that I was I was supposed to brush my teeth twice after I ate kimchi so that I wouldn't have kimchi breath going you know, out into the world. People are much more knowledgeable. I mean, you can buy like seaweed snacks at Trader Joe's. So I'm not as concerned with my kids what to pack them for lunch, but I still sort of am. On the one hand, I don't ever want them to feel shame around what they eat. Uh, On the other hand, I want them to feel shame around what they eat because I feel like it's a really important thing for people to, I mean, I I, I look at my immigrant experience. And when I was a kid, I used to think like, oh, my children are going to be so lucky because they're not going to have the same issues that I had as a child of immigrants. And then I reached this point when I was in my twenties, I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Being a child of immigrant parents is the thing I love the most about myself. I feel like it makes me more compassionate and it makes me more curious about the range of human emotions that there are, that exists. You know, it's a thing that it, loving it, it's like, it's loving the thing that, uh, that you're most pissed off about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in that sense, like it's a, it's a push and pull. It's fascinating. We are creating these little people and who knows what they're going to get out of all of this when they go out into the world. So tell me what 
about being in quarantine has been kind of a silver lining for you and your family? I told my husband very early on, we were talking about how difficult the quarantine was. And I remember I looked over at him and I was like, we need to have some traditions or we need to have some, something that we do every single day or regularly routines uh, where we can look back on this period of our lives with gratitude, where we can say, wow, that was a magical time. As difficult as it was, it was also magical. And and it was like, well, what can we do? Like, can we do like a little family happy hour, like at five thirty or five o'clock, where we're sitting outside and eating mortadella and like, you know, you know, sipping like a, a rosé or something like that, like something that we would never be able to do ordinarily. There's been so much inspiring stuff that's out there with regards to this period, calling it the Great Pause. But we're really in this crazy time in history. But also. If you think about that, that's also super exciting because we're living through something that is going to be unpacked and talked about for the rest of our lives. Yeah. 2020, right? That's crazy. And I love the idea of having a happy hour. But I also recognize that I am in a very privileged position to be able to even say that, entertain that. There are people who are really, really struggling out there um, to make ends meet and don't even know where their next meal is going to come from. Uh, so I'm also very like aware of, aware of that. Absolutely. It's just, it's a very difficult time for people. It really is. It really is. And, but I do think that it's important to create some sort of tradition or sense of normalcy for your children, for yourselves, so that you feel like you're living, you're, we're still moving forward. We're still connecting with each other. I think that's really, really important right now. Giving each other a, a moment to pause at the end of these crazy days to connect together and share feelings is really important. Thank you so much, Grace Joy. I really appreciate talking to you today. You're very welcome. It was so much fun. And thank you for listening today to A Therapist Takes Her Own Advice. If you have enjoyed what you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Future episodes include more interviews and stories about parenting, managing mental health, self-care, and a monthly guided meditation. If you have questions or topics you're interested in, please let me know. Go to my website, rebeccashackney.com, and send me a message through my contact page. 